1: Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life
0: leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in to another episode. This is the show that helps you in your leadership journey, a great free resource to help you Become the best leader that you can possibly become. I mean, I'm on the journey with you, and we do that by exploring the topics of leadership, talking to great guests, exploring the leadership entrepreneurial mindset in an effort to maybe learn something, something that we can take away and become better leaders ourselves. And this episode today, this conversation, chock full of great advice and mindset from the one and only Bill Rasmussen. Bill was the founder. He's the father of cable sports. He founded ESPN in September 7th, 1979, he's an Air Force veteran. He was an aspiring baseball star, but the Korean War got him drafted, and he went into the Air Force, and then he became an entrepreneur, or started working for Westinghouse, and became an entrepreneur, and uh, eventually, in the late 70s, launched ESPN. And it's something we take for granted, but he's the one that really brought, you know, the wall-to-wall coverage of of, uh, the NCAA regular season basketball, the March Madness, all of that, the coverage of the College World Series. He broke the advertising barrier to cable television by signing Anheuser-Busch to the largest cable TV advertising contract ever, and what I love about Bill is his mindset about life, and it's something that I've tried to try to do day in and day out. But it's saying yes and then figuring out the details later. And Bill, um, as he talks about in the interview, he's you know he, he does things on a whim, but it's smart risk, um, and it's exercising his talent, and it's not letting his fear override his not willing or, you know, override his willingness to try. And for him, if you don't try, you're never going to find anything out. And uh, his life has been the perfect example of that, which led to not only ESPN, but him to become, you know, sports broadcaster with no experience. Um, The list goes on and on. I'll let him let you listen to it in the interview. But I, I really love Bill and what he stands for. And as leaders, we can all learn something from him. So again, let me know where you're at in your leadership journey. Reach out to me at richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com. You can find a contact page. I answer every single email. It may take me a while, but I promise you I will get back to you. Just let me know where you're at. I'm always helping people with uh, their leadership questions and advice. And, of course, you can check out my services at richardryerson.com, my speaking, my coaching, my, my masterminding. All of that's available there at richardryerson.com. And, of course, my Legacy Leader Blueprint course, which is a course perfect for organizations who are looking to take, I don't know, maybe five to ten of their high, up-and-coming high performers and dive into the concept of uh, leadership on my online video course plus personal mentoring sessions with me, you can learn all about that at richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com. Just click on the Legacy Leader Blueprint. You can watch a video there that will tell you all about the course. And for $349 a seat, it will not break the the bank or the company's budget. And uh, it'll help you become more influential leaders. I promise you that. All right. So without further ado, here is the father of cable sports and ESPN, Bill Rasmussen, on Dose of Leadership. Well, Bill, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership.
1: Thanks, Richard. Looking forward to chatting with you this morning.
0: Yeah, likewise. I am so excited when you accepted this offer. Um, You know, obviously growing up as a child, I was born in 1968, and I remember – when ESPN hit the airwaves. I remember that day in September of 79. And um, you are,
1: you're, you're one of the few people who does these days because the numbers are becoming <laughs> less and less. <laughs> I realized the other day, for example, almost every player in every major league sport has no idea what life was like before ESPN. They've all been, you know, ESPN's now 38 years old. Right. Or will be next month. <laughs> there aren't many pro athletes older than 38.
0: I remember sitting there with my, and we we had just got cable. I mean, cable was brand new to us then. And, you know, of course, growing up from 68 to 79 in the year that we got cable, you know, having the three channels, four channels, if you counted PBS, you know, and I was the remote control, right? And dad telling me to get off the couch and change the channel or whatever. But um,
1: that's right. And I, I remember those days.
0: And I remember my dad saying, he's like, what are they going to show for 24 hours? You know, now look at it. You can't imagine life without 24 hour news sports or anything almost.
1: Yeah, that was a question we heard a lot those days, Richard. It was uh, the first, the first Oh, six, eight, nine months. Everybody said it's never going to work. Well, who's going to do that? What's going to you know? Nobody's going to want to watch that many sports. Well, at that point there were twelve bowl games. Now last last bowl season, I think ESPN televised thirty-five to thirty-six bowl games. Wow. Um, football on television between the big three and those days you mentioned just the three big networks and PBS. Football was. Probably 25 games a season. They'd have two on some Saturdays and a bonus every now and then. And you always saw the same teams, you know, Texas and Alabama and Oklahoma, Michigan, USC, Notre Dame. That's just the way it was. And uh, we said, well, there's more than that. We can show a lot more games than that. In 24 hours. We, we I don't know where this We came up with this comment. We had a statistic, we said, <clears throat> in quotes, statistic. At least uh, not everybody works 9 to 5. You know, there are people who work 11 to 7. There are people who work 3 to 11. And there's somebody watching. There, are, We came up with this figure. There are at least a million people watching television at any given hour, 24 hours a day. Nobody could question it because there was no, there was no television that went overnight at that point. All right. the three networks, if you recall, signed off at 1 o'clock.
0: Yep, I remember.
1: And so people looked at us like, where did they get that statistic? And we just barged ahead in the conversation. <laughs> you know, let's, not, let's not worry too much about the details and the validation at that point. Right. And and they, uh, of course, back when we went on the air, and I don't know if you remember or if your dad said anything to you, we were not allowed to televise any football games live because the Big Three had a contract with uh, the NCAA. And... And we could tape and play something at 1030 at night, but that was all we can do. Wow. And actually, and actually, uh, Barry Switzer at Oklahoma and uh, I think it was Bobby Dodd, or I'm not sure who it was at Georgia Tech, brought a lawsuit. They wanted their game shown live. They didn't want to be restricted to the, the uh, NCA or what was ruling their television in those days. Had a ruling that no more than one team could appear no more than three times in the season. And Barry Switzer said, Everybody wants to see Oklahoma every game. So they actually filed an antitrust action. And in, by 1984, it had worked its way through the courts. And just in August of 1984, the ruling came down. And all of the network contracts were voided just three or four weeks before the season started. And everybody who had ever dreamed of televising a football game live. Started televising in September, and of course ESPN was right on top of it, and off we went. Yeah, live football has never been the same.
0: Well, I tell you, from uh, my parent, we're a sports family, and and I am um, up until even when my dad passed away in 2010. I mean, ESPN was on constantly in our household, and so it, we, it was a staple in our household. And it's just it's fun to hear how it began. But I, I'm the things that struck me about you, and why I wanted to talk to you, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, is that that's struck out to me as I look at your career and how you got to this point is that you always said yes and tried to figure out the details later, something that I try to subscribe to. I think that's where the richness of life comes in. How did you develop that mentality? How, if you can think back did it go back to your childhood and when you were playing sports, I mean, when did it start for you?
1: Well, I I think it actually, I was born in the thirties so that, you know, we all lived through world war two. I was, uh, I was in the fourth grade on December 7th 1941 and so I was very much aware of what was you know what was happening and we went through rationing gasoline rationing food rationing uh blackouts uh air raid drills I mean we did we did all those things and my father always said you know we're going to get through this don't worry about it we're yeah. going to make it we're going you know and he did everything he could he started out as a banker and then Things changed, and he ended up uh, being a conductor on a streetcar, and then he ended up selling insurance. But he said, I'll always keep food on the table. You can always make those things happen. And I guess that's probably where it started. And then I I was absolutely certain I was going to play third base for the Chicago White Sox by the time I you know, graduated from college or high school, one or the other. But uh, the Korean conflicts started June 25th, 1950, the very day I graduated from high school. Oh, my gosh. So that ended all of those things because everybody went in the military and, or to college and the military or straight to military. So I went to college and was in the Air Force ROTC. While I was in uh, high school, the Army ROTC was in, was a very strong program in high schools across the country. Coming right out of World War II, you would expect that, I guess. And then in, uh, got out of the Air Force, uh, got out of, uh, college and it was time to go on active duty and I actually in November 1956 went on active duty at the Air Force. Wow. So you know we all there were two things in my father and I think everybody kind of had the same feeling especially during the war it was patriotism and coming out of this we're going to be stronger than ever and we can we can do anything we want. Yeah. And it kind of stuck with me and I always thought I could do anything I wanted except uh, when I came out of the Air Force way too old to start thinking about playing baseball and i right. was married and had my first son and so i uh, went to work for westinghouse and and i don't know i guess i'm one of those people who always looked at something and said i think i can do this a little better or why are we doing it that way it doesn't seem right let's see if we can do this and so i had some suggestions at westinghouse and they had a uh, a program an advertising program that they would send all kinds of material. This was the retail division, the Westinghouse Lamp Division. They would send all sorts of uh, corrugated stands and advertising materials and plans, incentive plans for the sales across the country, but to ship the product it had to go through a union shop at the headquarters in, in uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey. And they would only send so many a day, and people in the field were complaining. They they had a meeting and the material arrived 14 weeks later.
0: Oh my God. Or
1: 12 weeks later. And so I said, there's got to be a better way. And so I talked to the advertising manager and said, I'm going to quit and start a company, And but you have to be, agree to be my first customer. And they were. And so in uh, 1959, I started a company called Ad Aid Inc. Right. Where we came up with that name, I had no idea because we were just going <laughs> to aid the advertisers. I guess. Right.
0: And so you were were providing all the marketing, the POP materials and everything for for, for a sales force.
1: The the big thing was we guaranteed them that whenever any order came in for any of those materials, it would be in motion within 24 hours toward its destination. In those days, in motion didn't mean FedEx because it hadn't been invented. Right. It was U.S. Mail, uh, Parcel Post, or uh, Emory Air Freight was the quickest way we could get something done. I don't think Emory Air Freight's around anymore. I'm not even sure. You might know.
0: I, well, I remember the name, but I don't know if they still are around or not.
1: I, I think probably we got swallowed up along the yeah. way. But anyway, uh, I, I said, let's do this. And he said, okay. And so I can remember the, how quickly it happened. And in rapid order, we rented a little space. We didn't know how, you know, how busy it was going to be. We rented 800 square feet in an abandoned storefront right near the plant. Less than a month later, we rented twenty five hundred more uh, square feet more, and by October we took part of a warehouse for fifteen thousand square feet.
0: Was, it, was, this pri- we, was this primarily for using Westinghouse, or did you have other clients at this time? It was primarily
1: for Westinghouse, but other other we were talking to other people at the same time. We we found that we were in a business area where the warehouse was, and we thought we'd do business with some of the small businesses up and down. And we found out that's not a very good. Path the path to victory, so to speak. So we just we went to General Electric and S&H Green Stamps and General Foods, and with what we were doing at Westinghouse, they all jumped on board. And the the way that we did it, uh Richard, was really kind of unique. And if we had patented the idea, maybe we'd still be around today. It's, it lasted for about 50 years, but but we got a uh, literally a roster of housewives and and young men who were available at odd times I mean you know housewife could take the kids to school and work three hours or come in after the her husband came home in the evening or whatever and we worked from seven in the morning till seven at night with basically all part-time people wow and if they could make we just you know big order would come in and we'd get uh somebody out we had the person who would get on the phone and just start calling down a list and if you Said you couldn't work today. It didn't make any difference. It didn't put you in a bad light. We'd call you again the next time, and so we were able to turn out huge volumes, big big jobs. And the more big jobs that we turned out on time, the word spread, and it became a very successful business. That's interesting. But I retired. I retired from that, though.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. I'll I'll get to that in a second. But I'm curious if if you realized it's amazing to me that you've you basically you know went through high school, went to college. You know essentially went into the military and then you started worked at one place and then you started a business and so it just seems this entrepreneurial mindset i mean it's kind of been inherent in you with you this idea of like I can always do it better, I can figure out a way i can I'll say yes and figure it out later. Did you realize That's, did you realize you were an entrepreneur at that point i mean had you felt like you I, don't made think,
1: it? I don't think I knew the, I don't think I knew that word but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I knew what I wanted to do
0: right. Yeah, so you, you, it's interesting that you, you you have this pretty successful business right out of the gate, Um, and your first client was a company that you worked for, the first company you worked for out of the military. But then you decided you wanted to get into broadcasting, which I found fascinating because, obviously, I love broadcasting. I was a, a broadcasting major originally at Wichita State. But you decided, hey, you know what? I'm gonna, I can't play baseball. I'm going to at least be a broadcaster. Was that always a dream that you'd had or –
1: yeah, yeah, once I once I got out of the uh, Air Force and realized I couldn't play, I really did start thinking about broadcasting. Fortunately, I was in the New Jersey area, and in those days Major League Baseball was a little less organized than it is today, and the Giants, Dodgers, and Yankees all played in New York many times on the same day on different channels, Channel 9 or Channel 11. You know, now now they play, you know, if the Yankees are home the Mets are on the road and vice versa. But, uh, one of the voices we heard, of course, was Vince Scully with the Dodgers. He right. started back amazingly back in the 1950s. Yeah. And so I decided that that was a, I loved baseball and I couldn't play, but I could broadcast. And so that's kind of what I had in mind. Even when I went to work for Westinghouse, the dream just didn't die. An odd little story that goes with that while I was working at Westinghouse in 1954. Uh, World Series was between the Cleveland Indians and the New York Giants. And the shortstop for the Cleveland Indians was Sam Denty. And one day I was sitting in the uh, office at Westinghouse. This would probably be 1957 or 8, and the advertising manager said, Hey, we got this guy coming in from a mailing house. We have to talk to him because we're going to do this big, whatever the project was. And I said, Fine. He came in and introduced himself and he said, Hi, I'm Sam Denty. And I said, Not Sam same day Oh yeah yeah we i'm the one i get that a lot and he was the he was the shortstop because even in the 1950s most major leaguers had to have an off-season job even guys that played in the world series right it's incredible compared to what they have today
0: so when you decided to get that first job that broadcasting job how did that start i mean if I remember correctly, if I was reading that you had saw an ad in a broadcasting magazine, is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think today it's broadcasting and cable, but back then it was just broadcasting magazine. Yeah, they used to load, uh, run these small, you know, two or three line ads saying are needed, Westerly, Rhode Island, call such and such or newscast, you know, whatever it was. So I saw one in Westerly, Rhode Island, and I called the guy and said so I'd come up and see him. And he said, sure, come on up. Let's talk. Fortunately, he didn't ask me anything on the phone because I had nothing to say on the phone. I had no, no background or anything.
0: <laughs> no experience.
1: <laughs> but I figured this was really part of the yes, I can do this um, method. And I had decided that I was going to do something by my 30th birthday. And this was a, the only interview I ever had for radio. I went, I got in the car. Lived in Clifton, New Jersey, drove to West Philly, Rhode Island, and after the, you know, good morning and how are you and so on, he said, well, did you bring a tape? And I said, no.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he
1: said, no tape? Well, what station do you work for? I said, I've never worked at a radio station. He said, well, what are you talking about? Do you want you, you came here to be, you're applying for a sportscaster's job, but now you tell me no tape and no no station. I said, that's right. He said, "Well, why would I hire you?" I said, "Because I can do it." <laughs> he kind of looked. He, he looked at me for a second. He said, "I'll tell you what. We're putting a new station on the air in Amherst, Massachusetts. If you'll move to Amherst and help me put that station on the air, you're my sportscaster." That's how I started. Wow! But went, went on the air April first, nineteen sixty-three. Had <laughs> never spoken a word on the radio, and they. Uh, never been employed anywhere. <laughs> but but uh, what's so hard about saying, you know, last night, April 1st, baseball season was getting underway, and talk a little bit about the beginning of the baseball season and local sports where Amherst Mass is the home of the University of Massachusetts. So it was pretty easy to put something together. The part he didn't tell me is that I would be the sportscaster, but everybody that was on the air was also selling advertising when they weren't on here. Right. So I was an advertising salesman, and I did know a little bit about that from the Westinghouse days and you know things that you absorb, talking to salespeople and so on.
0: So did it meet you? So that's,
1: how, that's how it started, 1963.
0: I love Off that. I went. Having that confidence and just saying, hey, yeah, I can do this. And the guy saw something in that. No one's ever had that craziness or courage, I guess. He probably was just like, who is this guy? That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the fun things that grew out of that after we we went on the air April 1st and uh, being a sports fan, I said, you know, uh, well, his name was Augie, whatever his last name was. Right? remember his first name was Augie. I said, hey, Augie, we got to do some football games. And he wasn't much of a sports fan. He said, yeah, I suppose so. I said, why don't I go to the University of Massachusetts and find out who to talk to and we'll make the, we'll see what where we go from there. And he said, sure, go ahead. So I found the athletic director and went up and introduced myself. And I said, Mr. McG- it was Warren McGurk was his name. I'll never forget him, big ex football player. I said, Mr. McGurk, we'd like with a new station in town, we'd like to broadcast all of your football games. They only played like nine games in those days, unlike they do today. He said, Oh, great idea, go ahead. No rights fee, no contract, no anything. Just go ahead and do the games. So we said, Okay, so we <laughs> went back to Alguine and said, Yeah, we can do the games. First one's in Oro, Maine. And radio with those days was a telephone line from AT&T, and t and they put an installation wherever the game was, and, you know, you could broadcast back to your station. The part that I hadn't told anybody was I had, you know, it's the continuation of really the first interview. Obviously, I'd never broadcast a football game because I hadn't <laughs> done any sportscasting oh along the way. So we're on the way to Maine and the University of Massachusetts Athletic uh, sports information director was going to do the color and you know keep me up to date right. with who who was doing what and so on as they do today. And all the way to Maine, an eight, eight-hour eight drive. And I kept saying, "Should I tell them that I've never done this before or not? Should <laughs> oh, no I tell God. them I've done no, no. I said I'm just going to wing it. And, and I did. <laughs> never, never did tell them that was the first game I had ever done.
0: That's crazy. How did you prepare for that? Did you do, did, did you do by any preparation? The way,
1: I prepared by imagining what,
0: what the, real, the
1: real broadcasters would do. They would get the roster and they'd go down and they would, you know, memorize the starting players, find out as much information as you can about them, and then rely for on, on the fellow from the SID's office for all the, you know, detailed statistics. And it was just, I put together my version, if you will, of a depth chart that I could refer to while the game was underway but I, you know, you learn the quarterbacks and the ends and the and the running backs, the linebackers, and and I, I fortunately I've been blessed with a really really good memory for many many years. As far back as I can as I can remember, I could read things and they would stick with me. So it was, I did a lot of it on a wing and a prayer Richard, to be <laughs> to be uh, honest about it, but it was. Yeah, but it it was was a calculated risk,
0: right? It was smart risk. It wasn't. It wasn't like, well, I'm just going to try to figure this out. I mean, you did some preparation, like you said, you've been blessed with the great memory, and so doing some study. But I love what you said there about the um, the kind of the the um, playing it out in your head, the playing out the movie in your head beforehand. I I'm a big fan of that. You know, kind of seeing seeing you or kind of manifesting what you see you become. Type of thing, exactly. almost, yeah, exactly. And so, you do you do you do that with everything?
1: I'm afraid I do. I I just try to, uh, you know, I, I I've heard the phrase just as you said. Just I now mean, it's kind of like a movie playing out. And let's see how it's going to work. Sometimes the movie doesn't always work out the way you think it is. But but yeah, that's that's always kind of I can imagine. I think of it as imagining this is going to happen, then we can make that happen, and then when we get that in place, we can go out to do the next step. And for some reason, uh, and I and I don't know where that comes from, or you know, I didn't go to school and take a class in that. I don't think there is such class. I
0: don't know. No.
1: Yeah. But um, I just, you know, one of them is I know I can do it. yeah If you if you have the right mindset and you know you can do it, and you never 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 stop until somebody proves you can cannot do it, or you go ahead and do it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, you know, doing this show four and a half years and 300 plus interviews, a the theme that always comes out in these conversations, that it's so less to do about the talent, you know, talent's kind of the given, but it's more about the tenacity and the kind of the, the suspending the belief in how things are going to get done. You just know they're going to get done. And, yep. and that is always seems to me to be the the thing that drives people over the goal line where, you know, 95, 98, 99 people will get to the one yard line. And, but to get it across the goal line, it's the one that never, the person that never gives up, the person that never quits. Um,
1: Well, well, I learned, I learned, and I tell this story frequently when I speak at college campuses or even, I can remember telling it one time that a football coach asked me to come in and talked to the team just before the kickoff. He said, just some message to inspire them. And, and the thing, I was playing baseball, obviously, in high school and college and so on, and summer leagues, and one summer league, and it was 1952 or three. I I—I was pretty fast in my day, and had never been caught stealing, ever, in this one season, which is unheard of. I mean, that's just... It's a statistic nobody would ever know about but me, but I was pretty proud of that. Anytime I wanted to steal a base, I'd steal it, and I know I could make it. We're playing the last game of the season, and I thought, oh, well, just steal second base. Why not? And guess what? I would steal second base, and I would be whatever number of stolen bases all, all through the season I would have without ever being caught, and I knew I had it stolen and I let up for just a second before I started to slide. I was congratulating myself before Mm. the job was done. Right, And you know the outcome. The ball arrived out, done. That was it. And telling that story to you right now, I still can feel that same feeling I had then, that I'm never, ever going to stop until I get as far as I can go. And and I either physically can't go any farther or, or, you know, whatever the block. But as long as I can think about it, I'm going to give it 100%. Until I succeed or fail, and and I, I mentioned that story in a little bit of a different context for football. This team <laughs> went out and they scored three touchdowns in the first seven minutes. And the wife of the other linebacker turned to me and said, "What did you say to those guys before <laughs> the game?" I said, I, don't, "I said I don't think that had anything to do with it. They're pretty good football players."
0: <laughs> it's, it's but
1: but but that attitude. <clears throat> excuse me. That attitude, I think pays off if you, you, just, you, you can't give up. If you, if you give up without saying it to the very end, win or lose at the end, you'll never know. Would I have made it if I kept going? Sure I would have.
0: Right. But at least you know you gave everything, you laid it all on the field. Right. Yeah. And I think the important thing to realize about that is that that is the one thing you have complete 100% control of. That is a 100% choice. And I think that, exactly. And, and and when you realize that, then you realize that you have way more influence and power than we give ourselves credit for, because yep. I, I think we look at too many of the external circumstances thinking and blaming this or, or worrying about this or worrying about the obstacle. But it's really the obstacle really is the way. And just like in that story, that obstacle or that kind of in your own mind, that personal failure, no one else probably, you know, everybody else has probably forgotten, long forgot about that stolen base that you oh, failed yeah. to get. I don't
1: think anybody else even thought about it for a second. Right. You know? I mean, it was just the way it was.
0: But that was your obstacle, and that obstacle became your way, and um, yep. that's what defined you. And I think that's what we need to to kind of look at those obstacles or those failures or those stumbles as blessings, because if you look at them that way, you, they, they they actually develop your character and who you actually can become. I don't know. That's the They, way they
1: become it. great assets.
0: Right. I love one that. Of the, story.
1: One, of the, one of the things that someone, uh, I think it was a, when I was <clears> at <throat> the Whalers, it was someone from WTIC Hartford. We were talking about all the things we were going to do with the Whalers. This is before ESPN began in nine, the mid 1970s. And he said, I'm gonna, it was, I guess it might have been the sales manager. And he said, I want to tell you something. It's a philosophy that I have in the sales business. And I'm always willing to listen and learn. And he said, when you put together a plan that's, that's well thought out and you take it and present it to somebody and they say, no, we can't do that, and they show you the door, just don't think of it as a failure on your part. Think that they've just missed a great opportunity.
0: Right.
1: And they have. And that's, mm-hmm. what, that's really the way we went at ESPN and we started talking to major investors. And Getty was the seventh one we talked to before we got oh, really? somebody to invest any money. All of the others, and I remembered thinking of what that fellow had said, and in my mind, all of the others made him they they, they made, made a mistake, mistake not me yeah. I, you know that's fine i thank you very much, and courteous I mean I'm not going to scream and holler at them. and no but but they did make a mistake
0: right, and it's having that internal kind of um again suspending the belief on how it's going to happen, you just know it's going to happen, you know despite what you you're, despite your feelings, you just know that it's going to happen in some some way i'm a exactly. huge, huge believer of that and
1: i and I feel that way to this day i you know I don't have any <clears throat> <there's> not, <clears throat> excuse me there's not an e s p n or anything that big, but uh other things that i'm doing i you know i just i think they're all gonna turn out fine they they don't always all turn out fine, and when that happens, you just have to accept it and go on but
0: uh yeah, it's almost I think
1: uh, that's the way you have to start. If you don't start that way, you're never going
0: to get anywhere. Yeah, one thing that I was completely um, really blown away by was the time frame of ESPN. I guess in my in my mind, I would think it'd be man, it'd be this lifelong vision and dream that you always had, but it almost came about by a mistake, a firing, and here yeah. it was in 1978. If I get my timing correct, when you got essentially fired from the whalers in, in early spring, right. spring of 78. And then just through kind of like some quirk conversations. And then here we are in September of 79, we're launching this network on this satellite, which you didn't even know anything about, but it just happened through these kind of weird, quirky conversations in 1978 in less than a, in basically a year and a half, you launched this from conception to, to, to go live, which is just remarkable to me.
1: I, I look back on that, and I don't know how it happened either, but we we just kept going seemingly 24-7 days a week. The, uh, the firing came on Saturday Memorial Day weekend, and by the end of June, on June 25th, we had a press conference talking about this crazy idea that we had. Oh, my God. And we, we incorporated in Hartford, Connecticut on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1978. So from Saturday Memorial Day weekend, through a press conference, through a lot of conversations, through everybody saying, we can get this done, we said, well, we better go and incorporate it. And we did on uh, July 14th. And then my daughter worked and uh, was 16 years old working at a restaurant at the shore where we'd gone down in New Jersey for many years. And on uh, August 16th, my son Scott and I were going down to her birthday party. It is August 16th, 1978, which was, let's see, June, July, about two and a half months after being fired. And uh, on the way down, we were talking about what are we going to do? We got this great idea and so on. And we had we had heard about the satellite by that time. We had uh, a cable operator had turned us on to RCA, and uh, we found out, that I, once I figured out what we were talking about, transponders, not satellites, the satellite has 24 transponders. And when they got that into my head, I was... I was off and running. Right. And so while we were driving to and from New Jersey, we basically put together the entire concept of ESPN right down to a 30-minute sports show that turned out to be called Sports Center. We called it Sports Central that day on August 16th, went on the air as Sports Center uh, in 1979. So really, so after that, it was just a question of who we're going to convince to provide this and invest in it and so on. And where are we going to get all the programming? Everybody said there's just that. There simply is not much programming available. But I found a statistic that said the preceding year school year, the NCAA, all of the NCAA schools had sanctioned 116,000 events. Wow! Well, if they sanctioned 116,000 events, and if they were all two hours, that'd be 232,000 hours, and we only needed 8,760 hours of programming. So there's plenty of things. There were plenty of things to televise. Right. And 8,760 hours, and everybody said, "What are you going to do for a full year?" And pretty soon, of course, as you well know, along came ESPN two and ESPN News, (laughs) and all of the other networks. There's there's plenty of sports, and it has become just a major, major business. But it was it was fun putting it together and uh, hearing all the people that said no, and many of them came. Later and said, you know, I should have listened the first time. And a couple of people actually laughed the first time and came later and said, remember when you came to meet us? Boy, were we wrong. And But to me, it wasn't that they were wrong. They just didn't have the same vision. I did, that's all.
0: Yeah. What about the, the, the getting – you were talking a little bit how you, you went to Getty and got some financing. And w- what was that like? Was that a, a, well, a juggling act of spinning plates? I mean, how did that come to fruition? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a good that's a good analogy you just used. <laughs> the spinning place. We we I lived at a condominium uh community in Connecticut. It was sold because the whoever the whoever the developer was had to get out and it was purchased by Fidelity Insurance in Philadelphia. All of this is by way of background. One of the people working at uh Fidelity was a a gentleman, uh in effect, a small investment firm, and uh, so I would see him. And he came up one time when I was working at the Whalers, and he said, "You know, we have to. Can you help me promote this this new property that we just have? And can you get some hockey players to come out? Well, hockey players, if they're going to get a free round of golf, they'll go anywhere. <laughs> right. So we fl- we flooded the course, and they brought a lot of prospects out, and you know, and it seemed to be pretty successful.
0: And I'd forgotten about it.
1: I did, you know, that was back in my hockey days. And I thought, I wonder if town's still around. I'm just gonna give him a call. So I called him. And I remember it was like a quarter to eleven at night. And I started talking. And he he didn't say anything. And at the end of the conversation, ten or fifteen minutes later, he said, Can you call my office in the morning? I said, Sure. And I thought, Well, that's encouraging, but I didn't exactly know why. And so I called him the next morning and he said I want you to talk to this gentleman, J.B. Doherty. Tell him what you told me last night. So I told him, and he said, J.B., then said, can you come down to our office tomorrow morning? So I thought, wow, something. We've struck a chord somewhere. Well, turns out I had a very receptive audience. They had just been engaged by RCA AmeriCom, help promote their satellite business and transponder sales because they were lagging. (laughs) you know, just serendipitous that I happen to live in a place that somebody couldn't pay for. Developer went out of business. Insurance company steps in. Guy leaves the insurance company, starts a small investment firm, and it comes full circle. And they then said, okay, we'll, we'll line up some advertisers. I have some po- potential investors for you to go visit. And we visited with uh, Pittsburgh Plate Class. Mellon Bank, uh, Campbell Soups Venture Foundation, a couple of individual investors, uh, high net worth individuals. And then December, on a rainy night, I was a, a Friday night. I, I went to visit the TV committee Chairman, Captain Bull Coppage at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, because we had been working with the NCA uh, as well to try and get their interests going. And after I, every time I would finish meeting, I would call J.B. and give him the process, the, you know, what progress, whatever it was. And it was a rainy night. I was at the airport, and uh, he said, you know, we're running out of people to talk to. He said, but if you're game, can you be in Los Angeles on Monday morning to meet Getty Oil? So I'm in, where I guess it must have been in Baltimore. So I flew home, got another ticket, took off on Sunday night, Flew to Los Angeles, moved into the Marriott Hotel. They had a fire at two in the morning, evacuated the hotel. <laughs> I was awake all night and met with Getty Oil the next morning. And from that moment on, it just took off. And by by uh, Valentine's Day, 1979, Getty Oil called me. I was visiting the uh, Walter Byers at the NCAA offices in Kansas City. And Mr. Byer's secretary came in and said, excuse me, but uh, Mr. Rasmussen has a call. And it turned out to be Getty Oil saying, we're, we've decided to go ahead and invest in your company idea. And it was the same day that the NCAA said, yes, we're going to go ahead. And we ended up signing a contract with the NCAA on March 1st for all of their programming. And Getty Oil and started funding us and sent their finance manager out. And he brought his checkbook with him and away we went. Wow. What so the... From being fired to having the NCA sign and and Getty Oil on board, and several cable operators already on board, was only about ten months.
0: That is just insanity. That's crazy. Yeah, I
1: I I think about that myself, and I I remember getting on a lot of airplanes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can imagine. And
1: back in those, and this is probably long before you would remember flying such things. People could smoke cigars and pipes on the, and yeah. you could do anything. Yeah, it was. But you know, somebody would say, "Well, the smoking row is fifteen and back or whatever." Well, if you're sitting in fourteen or twelve, or yeah, make you're still square. in the smoking
0: section. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. flying on planes when back in the seventies, and even in the eighties, you could still smoke on the planes. Yeah, yeah.
1: Crazy stuff.
0: And that's just. But inc- it was.
1: It was. Um, it was interesting how many, the, the Pac-10 back then, that it now it's Pac-12, They I, I went to a meeting to visit with them, and they politely said, even though I'd gone all the way, they, they were meeting in Phoenix. And I flew to Phoenix to meet with them, and I walked in, and they said, you know, we've been thinking about it, and we don't think your idea is going to work. Thank you for coming. Hmm. Of course, now the Pac-12 gets 20 to $40 million a year from ESPN. Wow. <laughs> so,
0: in those early days where where were you on September 7th where I mean what was that like I mean were you in this obviously you're in the studio but I mean where, what was that moment like when the
1: Well it was it was really kind of interesting we uh, we cut it pretty close the the contract we still didn't have uh bathrooms the control room was a dummy control room because we had to host all, all the people from Budweiser were there Getty Oil NCA they were all there but we really were running it out of a remote truck outside the studio.
0: <laughs> oh, so you really so you you didn't have it. you were cabling in from a remote truck. Your studio yeah. wasn't even done. You yeah.
1: went on the air from a remote truck. Nothing <laughs> we went to the But um we had a guy sitting at the controls in the in the uh control room, you know, looking through the glass at the studio where everybody was doing their thing. Lee Leonard and George Grant did their uh opening comments and so on. But nobody in the control room knew it wasn't working because nobody's ever been in the control room. You know it's not like today where everybody knows I mean, ten year olds do video today, but back then that wasn't the case. Uh we had we wanted to show everybody how the satellite worked and we had Chuck Fairbanks, former coach at of the Patriots, who was now the Colorado coach. We had him in, Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado, in the middle of the field, and at 6:55, we checked everything; it worked. And as soon as we went to demonstrate it live, we could see him talking, but we couldn't hear anything. So, right out of the shoot, we had a problem. But everybody chuckled, and we got past it. It was uh, the the real the real tense moments came. I think uh, earlier in the day, as we had to do different things to get ready for the night. But by the time we got to 6:30 or so, it was just watching, and everybody was kind of wandering around. and And one of the maintenance men was cleaning our glass walls in the hallway, taking his time about it. And people were running back and forth with things for the uh, sports center that we were going to do, and so on. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And I remember saying to him, "What are you doing?" And he said, "Well, I'm just finishing my job. I'll be done here." You know? And he's just taking his time. Everybody had their own their own role that night, but. It was exciting, and the exciting part is we went all the way through until early Monday morning. We went on Friday night, stayed on all through Saturday and Sunday until early Monday morning, and nobody had ever gone 24 hours, none of the big networks, no matter what the tragedy or anything. I remember working at the NBC station in Springfield the night Robert Kennedy was assassinated and also the night that Richard Nixon resigned. Right. And the, net, and the networks went to 1 o'clock and said, thank you, you know, here's our national anthem and we'll be back. It was just, you know, just went to test pattern. That's all there was to it. Yeah. And we were so we went some 70, I don't know how many hours, 60-some-odds, almost 72 hours, and nobody ever done that. Of course, we showed a lot of the same things twice, but that was kind of the idea that, you know, if you were watching and you had to go to bed at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, but somebody who just came in at eleven o'clock, they had something to watch for the first time That's in right. their life.
0: Yeah, I remember. I remember the first time too that I saw a cross country match televised, which I thought yeah. was interesting. And um, yeah, and I just love it. Again, oh, I, go ahead. What were you gonna say?
1: We did a lot of a lot of strange things. We had pool contests, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I guess they still have poker contests. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I always wondered if. You know what the the major networks, particularly like Wide World of Sports and ABC and NBC Sports, what did, what were, were they looking at you as kind of a a threat? Was there a condescension you know towards looking at you? And what was the feeling like, especially those early years?
1: Condescension capitalized. Yeah, we were we were stupid. We were inexperienced. We we were not the networks or anything.
0: I'll give you a
1: prime example of the way they all the entire industry was very close knit. And people kept calling, saying, why can't we find you in TV Guide? Why can't we find, you know, what program's coming out? What game is coming up this weekend? So obviously we were talking to TV Guide, and uh, and we, wanted, I asked the same question. We wanted to know why. And finally a vice president, believe it or not, I don't know what he was paid, but he was a vice president, said, well, we can't list you because real networks only have three letters. Oh, my God. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Real <laughs> networks only have three letters. So it took a couple of years before they finally started listing us. And you know how they listed us? How? E-S-N.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Because we've become real networks, so they made us a three-letter network. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, and your logo, too. I, th- I heard an or heard an interesting story that the, the kind of graphic logo that you got. And, again, the, I'm sure the computer graphics for... Uh, or even the logo. It's like you would had found. Wasn't there a, a power company or something? Or what was the? What's the yeah, story behind uh, that logo?
1: Connecticut, uh, Connecticut Light and Power had something called an Energy Saving Program, ESP. And since we didn't have the uh, money or anything to go off and do animation in New York, they had already done a thing that showed uh, a ball or a planet or something circling the Earth. And it was called. That was our energy saving program. It was going to save the world, I guess. Right. And uh, we thought, well, that's kind of interesting because we didn't know what we 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 call it the ESP network, Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. But we didn't we didn't have the E at the time. We didn't really. This it was very early. And uh, I called uh, the to find out who was doing the the advertising, and it turned out to be an advertising firm called Bodner, Gorton, and Fox. And I happened to talk to the gentleman, Peter Fox, and said, well, you know, we'd like to use that if we can. Is there something we can do to to use the, uh, the graphic? Obviously, we want to put on our own audio. And he said, I'll tell you what, uh, if I can get the graphic can I, I want to work, I want to go to work. He said, "I think you have a great idea." Who's an avid golfer? He said, "This is going to be the greatest thing." He said, "I got to be part of it." And I said, "Well, I'll tell you what. You bring that graphic, and you know, let's talk." So the next day, he said, he called back and he said, "You can have the graphic, no charge, and when do I start?" <laughs> so, so he brought the graphic, and we built a little five-minute uh, tape around it took it to the cable show in early nineteen seventy nine in Las Vegas in April of seventy nine. And our little booth at the last minute had a crowd standing around it. And our whole pitch was, you see the way that ESP circles the globe or ESPN that we were ESPN, it's gonna circle the globe with sports and the satellite et cetera, et cetera. And people were fascinated. Of course we had the advantage. We you know, we found out things two or three days or a week before they knew it. So we were the experts and they weren't right. And they believed us. And, you know, and really we believed it. we knew we, we just, it just had to work. Sports fans are the most avid and they cross every demographic, Northeast, Southwest, young, old, rich, poor, male, female. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. They're all sports fans.
0: Well, some of the most loyal fans out there. And again, it's a great, great idea. It just, it's one of those ideas. when you look at it now, in hindsight and retrospect, you're like, well yeah, why wouldn't it make sense? But given the context of the time, it was like this is insanity. Why would anybody want to watch sports twenty four hours?
1: Exactly. <laughs> I've had a couple of people come up to me and say, What's the big deal? Everybody yeah. knows sports. Everybody loves sports. Why you know, why why do you why do you, you get you know, why do you get invited to speak here and there? What's everybody knows this? Of course those are people who are under forty. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Mostly, many times under twenty. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, this has been great, Bill. And uh, what? How can people get in touch with you? I mean, obviously, you're doing speaking, and and you're talking about this story, and and uh, you got a book out there. How can people get in touch with you and find out um, more about your speaking well, services? At, at, uh,
1: on uh, e- email, uh, on uh, online, I should say, is espnfounder.com is the website.
0: ESPN, and yeah.
1: that's got a link to Twitter and Facebook and everything else. The Twitter handle is uh, at Bill underscore ESPN. I always hear a lot, of, a lot of interesting things come in. It's it's fascinating to me who, who will send some things. Sometimes it's young people. Sometimes it's people who have been around a long time. And fortunately, just because of the circumstances, I, I can talk to all of them because I've been around a long time. <laughs>
0: Well, I think you're great, Bill. Again, you want it from, from a leadership perspective, from an entrepreneurial mindset perspective, I think there's something all of us can take away and learn from your philosophy. I mean, your life is, has certainly been one that shows that a life of richness can happen when you just put yourself in the arena. You say yes. You try to figure out the details later. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think that's how life probably should be, should be led. And so- I-
1: I happen to work in television for one affiliate, an ABC affiliate, and an NBC affiliate. And I can't tell you how long I've been, how long ago I've been saying, how long I have been saying these things. ABC, always be curious. NBC, never be complacent. I love it. And I, I just think, you know, and so I, I still ask people questions. Sometimes they look at me like, what? But that's okay. <laughs>
0: Well I was always is like can you can you instill curiosity in anybody and I think again it's it's a choice you can choose to be curious you can choose to look at any obstacle as um, a blessing it's hard to do it when your yeah. the obstacle is about is making it hard to breathe but at the same time you realize that you have the choice on how you deal with yeah. that obstacle yeah Well Bill I love it I love you I love what you're doing I love what you've done and I'm looking forward to see what uh, what the future brings uh, what you bring forward for us, and so I appreciate you coming on the show, and and thanks for your time.
1: Well, thank you, Richard. And who knows, maybe our paths will cross on an airline someplace along Absolutely. the way. Absolutely, could happen.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> okay,
1: enjoy it, Richard. Thank you very much.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Go to richardryerson.com dot com or doseofleadership.com dot com. fill out the contact page and reach out to me let me know where you're at your leadership journey also if you want access to my brand new online leadership course to help become a better leader go to LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com fill out your email and you gain access to a free 12-minute video that will reveal the top secrets of leadership and also show you how you can gain access exclusive access to my online leadership course that's LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com hope to see you on the inside thanks for tuning into the show